You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. So good to be here with you. Uh, it was really good to have last Sunday off. I hope if you were here, you were encouraged and challenged by Darren Simpson, our student pastor. Didn't he do a great job? Can we say thank you to Darren? Yeah, 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 yeah. So... Uh, I don't have time because I was off. And so they always say, we better plan on another 20 minutes for Matt's sermon. It's not like that. But uh, for those of you who haven't been here, my name is Matt Nickerson. I'm lead pastor. If you just came on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, we've been walking through the book of Luke. And we spent a year in the book of Luke. And I'm hoping by the end of the year, we'll be through the book. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But what I do know is there's a lot of stuff we've covered that you doesn't make any sense if you're new or newer here. And I don't have time to explain all of it. But if I could just give you a quick synopsis, then by the end of today's message, you will never want to come back again. I promise that. And here's why. By the time we get to the end of today's message, we get to the end of the book of Luke, chapter nine, and Jesus is like some of the most offensive he ever is in the entire scriptures. Aren't you glad you picked today to be your day at Kingsway? He's gonna ruffle some feathers. He's gonna challenge your thinking. He's gonna be up in your grill, but he's gonna do it in the most loving and encouraging way possible. And so my hope is to take that same approach. Real quick, let me bring you up to speed of where we've been, all right? So Luke has, ah, I didn't count. I think it's 28 chapters. I think that's accurate. Somebody don't correct me if I'm wrong. And um, in that process, we start with the birth. Quickly, quickly, we get to the fact that he's 12. We skip pretty much everything in between. And then we jump to like when he's 30-ish and he begins his ministry. And at the beginning of his ministry, basically the rest of Luke is leading us on a journey from where Jesus is to where he dies on the cross raises from the dead, and then what we call ascends or goes up into heaven, where he is today, leading over his church worldwide for every generation until he comes back to take us home. So the book of Luke, what happens is right here in chapter nine is a transition point for all of us. Because in Luke chapter nine, Jesus has been walking with these disciples. He has lots of disciples. We don't know exactly how many in Luke chapter nine, but we know that he's chosen 12 of them to mentor specifically. And they're going to become the apostles apostles, so that these 12 become the apostles. Right now, they're the disciples, and because of that, they are called and equipped and sent by Jesus. Now, what happens in chapter 9 is when he sends them out, he starts having a conversation with these guys, and he tells them, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Now, I don't know about you, but I love YouTube. Like, anybody else in here love YouTube? Okay. So, I love to just watch videos on YouTube. What YouTube does is the more you watch videos, the more suggestions it makes about things you ought to watch. So, because my son is a speed cuber, he solves a Rubik's Cube in about 10 seconds, we get a lot of speed cubing videos that pop up in our YouTube. But not only that, but we get a lot of Dude Perfect and competitive stuff because my boys, three boys, they all love Dude Perfect. But in addition to that, I love to watch debates between what we call apologists and other people. An apologist is somebody who's making an argument for the faith. And I love to watch guys like William Lane Craig. I love to watch him talk to Ben Shapiro. And I love to watch him debate, um, like, uh, um, uh, what's her name? Dawkins and Hitchens and some of these other atheists that are out there. What's really interesting, if you watch the conversation between Ben Shapiro and, and, and William Lane Craig, 
The conversation goes back and forth is William Lane Craig is making an argument for believing that Jesus is the Messiah, but Ben Shapiro is Jewish and he doesn't buy the argument. And so he's giving a pushback and he's saying, now look, my interpretation of what you're saying would be completely different because as a Jewish man, and I'm summarizing, but as a Jewish man, we believe that when Messiah would come, he he will set up a kingdom. His kingdom will never end. It'll be an eternal kingdom. It'll reign forever and he'll reestablish Israel. And again, the Christian perspective is you missed the point. Go back and read your scriptures and everything Jesus is doing in the book of Luke was foretold. He would do this, he would do this, he would do this. So in the series, we're connecting those dots. But Luke 9 is critical because Jesus is doing that. He's taking his kingdom and he's expanding it into the ends of the earth. And what's really critical is as he speaks of his death, that doesn't fit in the box that many of the Jews in Jesus' day had for Jesus. The Messiah wasn't going to come and die. He was gonna come and lead and rule and reign. And Jesus tipped over their apple cart and was like, no, 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 no. You aren't reading your scriptures carefully enough because this is why I came. I wanna show you a few of those so that we can build a foundation to get to the end where Jesus will offend us all. So, right, so let's just understand the, the, what he's doing before he offends us, okay? Here we go. So in Luke chapter nine, he says this. And he said, this is Jesus talking, The son of man, that's a title Jesus uses for himself. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Again, he's beginning this conversation, preparing them. There's gonna come a day. This is what is going to happen. So when it happens, you won't be surprised. But they didn't understand. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Okay, so I did a whole sermon on this last year. You'd have to go back and get all the details. But in essence, Jesus is preparing them. He's gonna die. Don't miss this. And anybody who wants to follow me is gonna have to die too. Not necessarily, literally, I mean, you're all gonna die, but you're not necessarily gonna die in service to Jesus, but you just need to know that when you do life Jesus's way, it's wildly unpopular. You don't make a lot of fans doing life Jesus's way. It takes an unbelievable amount of self-sacrifice and humility. It takes, it takes dying to your flesh on a regular basis. It takes showing mercy when you really want to be vengeful. It takes forgiving when it hurts too much to forgive. It takes trying one more, one more time when you really wanna give up. It takes saying no to things that make you feel really good. It takes doing business in a way that is completely different than the world does business. It means being a person with integrity and character and honor when it's not easy or popular to do so. It means standing for what is true and for what is right and what is good, defined by God, not defined by this world, even when the rest of the world says you're a bigot or a racist or evil or mean or unloving. And it's hard to figure out. But following Jesus means that's what we do. We take up our cross, whatever it is in that moment, in that day, and we walk with Jesus wherever he is leading us. 
Now, Jesus, many other things are happening in Luke 9. I don't have time for all of them. But Jesus takes three of those disciples, Peter, James, and John, the three closest. He spends the most time with them. And he takes them up on the mount. We call it the Mount, Transfig- mount of Transfiguration. There, Jesus' flesh is stripped away. And we get to see Jesus in his heavenly presence. Oh, to be there that day. And we get to see Jesus. He's bright with light. He is like white and shining. And it's glorious. And it's majestic. And it's beautiful. And it's awe-inspiring. And Moses and Elijah show up. Now, Moses is the Old Testament prophet who brought us the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, I guess, too. And then Elijah is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. In fact, Elijah never died. He hopped on a chariot of fire and rode up into heaven. And so there's a lot of stuff we've covered as to who these two characters are and why this is important. But it says in Luke 9, 31, they, Moses and Elijah, spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So here's Peter, James, John on the mountain. Jesus rips off the flesh. Here he is. Moses and Elijah show up and they're having this conversation. Wherever it is that dead people go, in the presence of God, they're still alive. And they're with Jesus and they're like, man, you got that thing in Jerusalem coming up, Jesus. Now, all of this is beneficial for Peter, James, and John. They still have no clue. They have very much a Ben Shapiro view of Messiah, what he would be and what he would do. And Jesus, it's taking a long time for them to get this. Jesus is peeling it back and peeling it back and showing them more and showing them more. I hope this is making sense. Then they come down off the mountain and there's a bunch of people who need healing. And there's one dad who has this son and the son has got a demon and he's got all these issues. And so Jesus deals with it. None of the disciples are able to do that. Earlier in chapter nine, they were able to do it, but here they aren't. And it says, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Okay, so what do, we, what do we do with all this? Why are you covering all this? I want you to see. Why does this keep coming up in Luke 9 over and over and over and over and over again? It's because Jesus is often going to blow up our understanding of who he is and what he's doing in the world. There is a literal war going on between God and evil in this world. And there are only two teams. You are either on God's team by faith in Jesus Christ or you are on the other team team. But the way that God views his enemies, at least at this stage in history, is he desires to bring them to himself, to win them to himself, to draw them to himself. That's the whole reason Jesus came. That's why he goes on in verse 51 and says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In other words, I know what's coming, Moses and Elijah, who aren't even here anymore, they know what's coming. I'm trying to tell the disciples what's coming, and I'm going to go face it and get it done anyway. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. My flesh is going to be stripped from my back. Nails are going to pierce my hands. A crown of thorns beat onto my head. People are going to spit in my face. The very people that I'm coming to love and to lead and to serve and to win to myself, and I'm resolutely going to go do what needs to be. I hope you're clapping for Jesus. But all this comes from Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus' title for himself, came to seek and save the lost. Right? So if I had to put a little bottom line on all of this, here's, here's my bottom line summary for all this. Ready? Putting Jesus first means arranging my priorities to match God's 
priorities. So it's 2024. How many of you set New Year's resolutions by round of applause if you did? Ready? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Uh, About 20 years ago, I know it's hard to imagine I'm even old enough to say that, but about 20 years ago, I gave up New Year's resolutions as a New Year's resolution. You'll figure that out in a minute. All right. So it wasn't funny, but it's like, yeah, me too. So about 10 years ago, I realized something. If you aim at nothing, you can hit it every single time. It's great. (laughs) And the problem with that is, are you hitting the right things? So I have kind of come to this place where I don't love New Year's resolutions anymore because most of us, let's be honest, we don't stick to them. So what happens for all of us? Same thing for Manicuson. You know, the end of the year comes, there's lots of food. There's an abundance of baked goods and desserts and candy. And because you're more tired and stressed, because all whatever margin you normally have in your life, and we don't have much, it gets filled up with all these extra meetings and presents and wrapping and shopping and buying and celebrating. And it's all good. Like, I'm so glad we do it. But it's so overwhelming that you don't have as much mental margin. And when you have less mental margin, you don't do the things you know you should do. So you don't don't eat as healthy and you don't exercise as much and you don't spend as much time with Jesus as you should, maybe I'm the only one. Probably. I'm, I'll just assume I'm the only one. So while I don't love New Year's resolutions, what I do love is anytime God's word calls me up to get focused on the things that I need to be focused on again. So what I've stopped doing is making New Year's resolutions that come in December, and I've started trying to have these just checkpoints throughout the year where God's word encourages me, challenges me, convicts me, and then I respond appropriately to whatever he's saying to me. And then I put some changes in my life related to, it could be in December, it could also be in January, it could be in February, it might be in March or June. Do I need to go through all the months? You get the idea that as God's spirit guides and directs and convicts and moves and stirs that I want to be responsive to what he's saying. And I'll just be honest, because I don't do it perfect all the time. My wife comes to the 11 o'clock service. She could sit here and tell you plenty of times that I've dropped the ball and she probably wished I'd done it better. And I wasn't a hypocrite up here. What I'm telling you is this is the life I want to live with my savior. I want to resolutely fix my eyes on Jesus so that the things of earth will grow strangely dim and the light of his glory and grace. Now, that said, let's get to the really hard offensive stuff. You're like, that was the easy stuff? Oh yeah, trust me, because that's gonna make sense of everything else that happens next. Luke chapter nine, verse 57. As they, the disciples, are walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay, so maybe you've had this moment in your life. Perhaps there was a, a camp, a retreat. Uh, maybe there was a sermon. Perhaps it was a conversation with grandma or your spouse. Or maybe you got a medical diagnosis, a car accident, something tragic happened, and in a moment, you're like, God, if you fill in the blank, I will fill in the blank, right? And in that moment, you made a decision. Jesus, I will go wherever you go. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And what I want you to hear is what Jesus says to this man. Instead of Jesus looking here, because here's what I would do, right? I'm the pastor of our church. I love to celebrate the end of the year. We had 60-something baptisms last year. We had this many people in attendance. Do you know we were up 10% year over year? Isn't it great? Everybody celebrate. Jesus looks at this man and he's like, are you sure? I don't know if you really want to do this. It's like, Jesus, this is not a good sales pitch. He's like, no, no, it is. Because I don't want him to have a misconceived notion about who I am. So his response is, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. 
In other words, again, in Jesus' day, he's got this group of people, which in the very next chapter, I think it's next Sunday, actually, we, uh, we go to chapter 10, and he's got at least 70, 72 disciples. So he's got a large group of men and women following him around from place to place. And what he's saying is, it may look exciting to you. I'm out here doing all these miracles. It may look exciting. I'm casting out demons, and I'm giving my authority away to these people, and they're going and doing it. But before you join my group, you need to know we don't have a blanket, and we don't have a bed. See that rock over there? That's my bed. In other words, if you really want to follow me, follow me no matter the cost. So as 2024 is setting in for you, is there any comfort in this life that you have chosen over Jesus? Now, here's the thing. I I, I had this conviction as I was writing the sermon. If I could list every possible scenario in your life that that could apply, then everybody would feel convicted to go back and and wrestle with God and what they need to do. But there's just no way I could do that. So I have been praying that the Holy Spirit would illuminate to you your answer to this question. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not asking you to say anything to your spouse or your best friend or your small group leader. I'm just asking you to be honest with God for a minute. Is there any place where you know you've accepted the comfort of easy over the cost of taking up your cross. 59, he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, a couple things. Uh, Scholars love to debate exactly what's happening in this situation. The reality is no scholar knows with certainty because the scripture doesn't tell us. So a couple things. It's possible his dad just died. And the man is simply saying to Jesus, Jesus, let me go back and do the burial ceremony thing, and then I'll join you. Again, context, Jesus is resolutely setting out for Jerusalem. I am on my way to die. This is a very unique moment in time. If he were to go back and take care of dad, who knows when he finally gets around to catching up. Because you see, that's part of it. You go back and bury dad if dad is dead already. Like, yeah, Jesus and his group, they've moved on to another town. And, you know, it's going to take more time to track him down and more money and more resources. You know, maybe I'll do it next time Jesus comes around. And let's be honest, don't we do that? Don't we feel convicted by God to make a change, to implement something, and then we justify and excuse it away? Like, ah, you know, maybe it was something I ate, you know. Maybe, maybe I'll get around to doing it next time. What's most likely happening here is not that his dad has already died, though what's most, most likely happening is that his dad is really sick and he doesn't know exactly when his dad is going to die. And so what he's saying is, let me go back, I'll take care of my dad, and when he dies, I'll bury him and then I'll join you. And see, you hear that and think, well, what's so wrong with that, Jesus? Well, nothing would be wrong with that if it wasn't that you were putting your dad above Jesus. And so here's where this gets really hard. There's a, there's a scholar I really have come to love and enjoy, and unfortunately, he just passed away a few years ago, but he still has a lot of writings and teachings from over the years. His name is Kenneth Bailey. And Kenneth Bailey um, was born as the son of a missionary in the Middle East, and then he was raised there, learned the culture, learned the languages, and he taught in a Bible college over there for a number of years before he came back to the States. I think he lived in Philadelphia for a while. And um, so he has a lot of insight into culturally what's going on. And he made this, this observation from being in the Middle East. He's like, for a 
for Jesus to teach this in the Middle East, this alone would have got you crucified. The idea that you don't fulfill your commitment to your parents above, like, whoa, yeah, that first, then everything else. It was actually a common understanding among Jewish people. The rabbis had many, many uh, teachings and tracts about how you are to fulfill the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment says to honor your father and mother. But in order to honor the fifth commandment, you have to understand its place in the context of the 10 commandments. I don't have time to unpack the entire 10 commandments. So let me just show you the first five. And these are my words. They're not word for word. And I hope that's not heresy. And I'm asking for a lot of grace because I had to fit them on a slide you all could see. So the first four commandments, I want you to notice this. The first four commandments are all about God. So have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol and worship it out of anything. Honor the name of your Lord. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. Show up every single Saturday, once a week, and worship the Lord your God, and then... After we get through the first four where it's all about God, then we begin the next six that are all about how we interact with other people. And the very first commandment about how to interact with everybody else begins with honor your father and mother. And I can tell you, that's a hard thing for any kid. Anybody in here have parents? Anybody? Okay, good, good. Whether they're alive or not, right? You've had them. Did your parents do everything perfect? I mean, come on. Besides my kids, no parent in here, nobody in here can claim that. (laughs) Nobody's parents get it right every time, and that's why God made it the very first commandment. So the rabbis and everybody in Jesus' day, they're teaching on this, and there's a high value, high priority on parents, honoring your parents. But let's come back to what Jesus says to the man If you would put up Luke chapter nine, I think it's verse 60. Yeah. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That is so offensive, Jesus. It's not if what Jesus is trying to do is get to the heart of the excuses that we make. The excuses that we make of God, I'll get around to it, but... I'm just going to be honest. I continue to meet a growing number of young people in this room in their 20s and in their 30s, and their parents didn't have faith. And because a grandmother or an aunt or an uncle or a neighbor or whatever, like they've always kind of had this person of influence in their life. And so they're open to it, but they're not sure. And they're exploring Jesus, but they're coming to the realization, for me to give my life to Jesus is going to mean something. It's going to mean that mom and dad don't like me, disown me, separate from me. For some of you, I know it's painful. It's not, it wasn't so much your parents, it's your kids. You raised them in the faith, but they hate God and therefore they hate you. For some of you, it's not your parents. It's not your kids. It's your friend group. And you know that the moment you go in with Jesus and you take up your cross, you know this group is no longer going to love you and accept you and appreciate you and value you. They're never gonna, they're no longer gonna treat you the way they used to treat you. And what Jesus is saying to you is the same thing he said to this man. Put me first. Choose me first. I need to be your highest priority. Follow me before all of your family and social commitments. Now here's how I would apply that to us today. 
Is Jesus before your kids' sports programs? Is Jesus in your workplace before your boss? So if your boss is telling you it's okay to lie and deceive and not be honest with a client because it's good for the bottom line, but you know Jesus isn't okay with that, are you willing to do what's right? Is Jesus first before the word of the world who tells you you're a racist, misogynist, bigot, judgmental, hateful person just because you're standing on a moral truth that you're convicted God's word says is right? I promise you, following Jesus will mean taking up your cross. You will not win a popularity contest following Jesus. And he's not afraid to call people out and say, do it anyway. And if you're gonna do it, be serious about it. Because one day you're going to stand before him and you're going to see it was all worth it in the end. But you have to be able to believe that to keep going. Let me just bring you into the tension that I feel in my own home, okay? Before I came to Kingsway, um, I went to my pastor. He was my mentor. I worked with him for 10 years. And um, I said, Alan is his name. I said, Alan, I've never done this before. My, my oldest son was still in Taiwan. We had not yet brought him home. We were going to get him, come back here, or come back to Colorado. We were there for like two weeks and then moved to Indiana and start this whole new world. And uh, I just said, what would you tell a young father and a lead pastor? I've never done this. I'm a little scared and intimidated. He said, Matt, if I could give you one piece of advice, here it is. Don't do what I did. That, that means a lot coming from a man that I've seen who's walked with the Lord faithfully at that point, 60 years. <clears throat> I saw lots of Alan's faults and failures and flaws, but he was a good man and a godly man. He still is. I was just with him in November. And I said, Alan, what do you mean? <clears throat> Excuse me. I said, what, what, can you help unpack that? He said, I was always taught the church comes first, your family comes second. And so consequently, what I did is I always put the ministry of the church ahead of my family, and I nearly burned my family out on, on their faith and on their God over and over and over again. Fast forward, it was about 30 days later, 45 days later, I was here at Kingsway and I was working under John Caldwell, who was our, our pastor at the time. And we worked side by side for nine months before John retired. And I sat in his office, one of our one-on-ones, and I said, John, help me. I said, if you have any wisdom for a young father and a guy is gonna eventually lead this church in like nine months and I'm terrified, I don't know what I'm doing. And he said, Matt, don't do what I did. And I went, <laughs> I think I know where this is going. He said, uh, I constantly sacrificed my family to serve the church. These men, and I won't say who and what, they went on to tell me various very painful stories that backed up what they said. Moments of like very beloved loved ones dying in their family's lives, and they would fly in, attend the funeral, and fly out to go serve the church. Now hold that for a second, because I, I feel that tension. In what Jesus is saying, I feel that tension. Like, well, how am I supposed to reconcile these two things? And again, in November, <clears throat> this past year, I was with Alan, my mentor, in Colorado. He did a little retreat, and I got to go, and he just poured his life into me again. And Alan was lamenting. He said, while my generation gave too much away to their businesses and their work and their, and their church, this generation has flipped it. Of course, every generation swings the pendulum. Those evil parents of ours, they don't know what they're doing, and they did the exact opposite. And they're un uncommitted or, or not committed enough to their church and their jobs and their workplace. 
Now, I, I would love to get these two groups in a room and let them talk because I think if they'd listen to each other, they'd hear each other's stories and find out maybe they aren't as different as they think they are. This is us, by the way. This is called the church. But I want to stand in the middle and hold the tension for a second and say, Jesus is saying, put him first, which means making sacrifices. And yet one of the sacrifices and things that Jesus has called me to do is to love and serve and honor my family. How I do that, that's why I got to walk with Jesus every day. Because there's times I go too far this way and Jesus goes, your kids need you. And there's times I go over here and he's like, you know, the church has got this big thing going on. You better get over there. It's going to be hard. You're never going to solve it. But when you commit to walking with Jesus first, then he can lead you and guide you into all those truths. <clears throat> Verse 61. I appreciate it. Thanks, Lois. You're a good man. Looks like somebody drank out of it, so pray for me. <laughs> <clears throat> all right. <clears throat> Still another man said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. <sighs> okay, so I remember the first time that I, my dad let me cut grass. When I was coming up as a young man, my dad just paid a, a local neighbor, had a, a grass cutting business, and so he just paid him to do it, helped a neighbor, and, and I kind of appreciated that. But we moved, and I was like a freshman in high school. My dad's like, it's time. You're, you're going to do, do this. But nobody told me how to do it. So we bought a lawnmower, and I remember going out and cutting grass. So literally, I made my first line. I'm right along the, the edge of the concrete, and I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm a little ADD. So I made my turn. I'm like, oh, look, a squirrel. Oh, man, look at that bird. I didn't notice that the concrete needed cleaned off over there. And hey, look at that. And, and okay, I didn't think anything of it. I made my turn again. Same thing. I got to the end of about half the yard, and I looked back, and there's these piles of grass everywhere, all over the yard. It's like, oh, that's a problem. So you know what I did? I took my lawnmower. I'm like, right in the middle of the yard. I know. Some of you are like, you did, you did what? <laughs> I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it now. Like, I'm the guy. Like, the wheels on top of the wheels, on top of the wheels, on top of the wheels. Okay? But that's what Jesus is saying. So back in Jesus' day, a farmer would get his equipment and he would be going to cut a path and plant his seeds. And what Jesus is saying is that if you keep your eyes fixed on where you're going, you're gonna have a straight path. But if you don't and you turn back to look where you're going, you're gonna end off. Try driving like this, by the way. Try turning around yelling at your kids. No, don't actually try that later. But you get, you get the analogy, right? It makes sense, Right? But this is what Jesus is trying to get to. When you say to me, Jesus, I will follow you. Just first, let me do this. The implication is this person probably wants to go back to their previous life. Whatever it is they gave up, whatever it is that God is calling them out of to follow him, they just want to go back. And Jesus is saying, no, follow me and do not look back at that. Again, Jesus is not saying don't love your family, don't care about them. That's not what's going on. But the context here is am I first? So follow me and don't look back. I believe Jesus is also pointing to another place in the scriptures. And this is a really important thing to understand. It comes from Kings. Okay, so earlier I talked about Elijah. Elijah's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, right? Well, Elijah, as he was getting ready to go up into heaven and leave earth, he's one of the two people in the Bible that didn't die. As he's getting ready to do that, he grabs another man named Elisha. And I realize that can be confusing, Elijah and Elisha. But Elijah grabs Elisha and he's gonna give him his ministry. Here's that story and then I'll explain why. I think this is what Jesus is pointing to. So Elijah went from there and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. 
he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. So Elijah finds Elisha, Elisha's working in the field, he's cutting straight lines. Do you get why I think this is what Jesus is pointing to? He's cutting straight lines when Elijah finds him. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. This would be a symbol, I'm calling you to be the guy who takes my place. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Elijah says to him, go back. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. Okay, so what we're about to see before I get to the end of this, what we're about to see is Elijah goes, you're the guy. I'm now putting the mantle of this responsibility on you. And Elijah goes, oh, oh yes, I accept. Let me go back. See how there's a connection there? And Elijah says, go for it. But notice what Elisha does when he goes back. He slaughters the oxen. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat. And he gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So two things. One, what we're seeing is a, a person who says, let me go wrap up my business so I can follow you more effectively. And how did he wrap up his business? He burned it to the ground. That is not, please do not say, Pastor Matt told me today to go burn my business to the ground. No. <laughs> when Jesus calls you to follow him, he says, don't follow me and follow me. And whatever you gotta burn to the ground, whatever you gotta slaughter or kill, whatever you gotta cut off, get rid of, whatever has to go away, whatever you gotta take outside and hit it with a hammer, whatever you gotta sell, get rid of, do it. And do it now. While standing in the field, Elijah goes, okay, we're doing this right here, right now. Yes, I'm gonna go say goodbye, but I am all in. But here's the other thing I think Jesus is doing. That's the first thing. I think the second thing, Jesus is saying, that's what Elisha did with Elijah, and I'm more important than him, so don't go back now, right here, right now. Follow me right now. And that bold call comes to us today, and it may be challenging in a way it's not challenging me, but as I laid in bed writing this message, I felt convicted by the Lord. Matt, what is God calling you, as Darren said last week, to start doing and to stop doing in your life, to walk with him? And I'm guessing because the spirit is here in this room, he's saying something to you. You know some habit you need to stop, some sin that needs to stop, something needs to change, something needs to start. What is it? So for me, I, I, I felt convicted by the Lord. I got my boys his little daily journals and there's literally that much space to write in there. And every day we read three to five verses of the Bible because I put that to bed at night. And what they have them doing is they have to write one of four things in that journal every day. One of four things. What's a prayer request we need God to answer? What's a prayer we've seen God answer? What's something God said to me today and I don't wanna miss it 10 years from now, I can look back and there it is. Or what's something that I'm grateful for that happened today that I wanna pay attention to? It's silly, but we just started seeing what God is doing in our lives and going, God, how do we take advantage of that more and partner? It's the smallest, simplest thing in the world. And there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth every night when it's time. But I want my boys, because I realize, man, I may only have 10 years left before they are men on their own, leading their own families. I want them to know Jesus is first above everything else. So what about you? 
Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray in Matthew 6. He says this at the end, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What would it look like in 2024 for you to make that your commitment this year? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whether it's popular, whether I lose something because of it, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation of the Bible, great man who passed away a couple years ago, he calls this a long obedience in the same direction, right? I'm just gonna keep walking towards Jesus day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out until I go home and see Jesus. That's a long obedience in the same direction. I'm not turning back, no turning back. I'm not gonna go sideways. I'm gonna keep with Jesus. Uh, I asked Chelsea to sing this song. I just want you to let the words of the song wash over you. What was really cool last service is by the time she was kind of second time through the course, I heard people out here singing it. You don't have to do that. You can, you're always welcome to. But I want the song to just kind of become an anthem for you. And I want you to sit and pray and ask Jesus. Okay, you're in heaven, you're alive, you're reigning over your church. What do you want from me in 2024? And if you haven't had the conversation, let this be the first of many conversations where Jesus tells you what he wants. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to us in every season, high and low, stressful and restful. God, I pray that when things are good and when things are bad, that we would faithfully follow you, a long obedience in the same direction. And that God, we would see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God, speak to us now. We need you. Encourage us where we need encourage. Challenge us where we need challenge. But God, please don't leave us the way we came in. Let us walk out of here with a renewed commitment to put you first and foremost above everything else. In Jesus' name.